This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Gone are the days of conservative observation and monitoring of patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. Driving this change is the knowledge that even mild forms of this condition is associated with very significant increase in cardiovascular mortality. Learn how to diagnose this condition early in patients with nonspecific symptoms. We just need to develop a high degree of clinical suspicion and to act on it. In today's podcast, I will be speaking to Professor Lee Delbridge. Professor Delbridge, tell us about yourself. I'm Lee Delbridge. I'm Professor of Surgery at the University of Sydney and part of the um, Endocrine Surgical Unit at uh, Royal North Shore Hospital. I'm an endocrine surgeon, but basically I see myself as an endocrinologist who can operate and my practice is entirely confined to the management of thyroid and parathyroid surgery. The plan today is to talk about the investigation and management of primary hyperparathyroidism, which I think is one of the most fascinating diseases that we have. It's it's a disease that is very much underdiagnosed and undertreated, and it's been like that uh, ever since it was first recognised. It's a fairly young disease. The first uh, operation in Australia was not until 1940 at Sydney Hospital. So it's a relatively recent disease, but it is still very much under-recognised and under-treated. Mm-hmm. A number of reasons for that. One is that for most of its history, it's been thought to be a disease that is not associated with any significant long-term health issues. In other words, it's a mild thing that sat in the background. The original symptoms of stones, bones, groans, moans and thrones were fine 50 years ago. And in fact, uh, in, in its first iteration, it was a disease associated with kidney stones. All the clinics in Australia were stone clinics and patients presented with kidney stones, and that was the only reason for presenting. In fact, uh, when I trained at the Middlesex in London, all the surgery was done by urologists who Mm. would have the patient lying there, take out their kidney stone, then turn them around, take out their parathyroid adenoma. But we now know that that's only a small amount. We then found that it involved the bones, but all of that changed 10 years ago when uh, it was shown that untreated mild primary hyperparathyroidism has very significant cardiovascular effects. Uh, We did a study in Australia and there was another large study done in Newcastle upon Tyne 
And it shows that there's a significant increased mortality in patients with mild untreated primary hyperparathyroidism. The Pearl study in Newcastle-upon-Tyne gives a you know, uh, excess risk ratio for dying of 2.26, and that's statistically significant. So it's, it's about the same as you know, smoking a packet of cigarettes a day in terms of your mortality. Almost all of the mortality is associated with cardiovascular risk. So cardiovascular events, stroke, cerebrovascular disease. And the interesting thing is that it's thought not to be calcium related. It's thought to be a PTH related phenomenon with a parathyroid hormone acting on the muscle wall because the same increased mortality is seen in patients who have normal levels of calcium. And we'll come back to that as a disorder later on. So mild hyperparathyroidism or even normocalcemic hyperparathyroidism is associated with this same risk. So it is a disorder which, if untreated, has significant adverse health effects. And that's now become accepted as part of the international guidelines in terms of management. Prior to that, it was said that, oh, if you had mild disease, if your serum calcium was relatively low, you could just observe it and ignore it. Nowadays, if you've got the disorder, no matter how mild the calcium, it should be treated. Hmm. That's just, just one factor. The, the other factor that it's not recognised and not well treated is because the symptoms themselves are often not recognised as such. The symptoms hmm. that are now the common ones in patients with primary hyperparathyroidism overlap with getting old. They overlap with a whole pile of other disorders. People who are depressed will describe exactly the same symptoms. They match the list of chronic fatigue syndrome. The aches and pains you know, overlap with uh, rheumatological disorders. So it's not as though there's a single symptom that says you have primary hyperparathyroidism. It's a broad range of background symptoms which are often not recognised as such. If they're not recognised as such, you may not think of um, checking for it because mm -hmm. serum calcium is not part of a routine biochemical screen. So it's a sort of disorder where you have to think of it first, then have to go out and check specifically by measuring a serum calcium and then measuring a PTH because even serum calcium alone is not sufficient to to pick the disorder up. So, that, so that's the background. It's changed completely. It's now common, as I said, two per uh, two percent of the population have uh, primary hyperparathyroidism, mainly in postmenopausal women, but it covers the entire range from young children right through to elderly men. Um, I thought we could perhaps talk about a, a case study. That would be good. Is that to uh, go through? So let's let's think about probably the most common presentation that a GP will meet in managing someone who turns out to have primary hyperparathyroidism. So we'll take a 60-year-old uh, female who's been otherwise completely well. She's got some mild background hypertension, which has been treated for a couple of years and comes complaining of increased tiredness, daytime lethargy, just not feeling right, bit of brain fog. 
take a history and you find that she's also complaining, interestingly, of being excessively thirsty, drinking a lot more at night, not sleeping well, and has got this just generalised myalgia, aches and pains in the muscles and a bone. That's the sort of picture that's very, very common, and most of it, yes, it's just getting old or having you know, background mild hypertension, but that's a very patient in whom you need to check two things. You need to check the serum calcium, but you also need to check the serum PTH. It used to be said that if you just check serum calcium and it's elevated, you can then do a PTH to confirm the diagnosis. But another big change in this disorder is the recognition that the initial phase of primary hyperparathyroidism can be what we call normocalcemic primary hyperparathyroidism. In other words, you can have excess PTH secretion, all the damage happening to the various organs involved, but the calcium isn't yet sufficient to rise because in patients with good renal function, the excess calcium that's coming out of the bones gets excreted. The normal calcemic hyperparathyroidism is now recognized as a real entity. It's associated with significant bone renal loss. It's associated with significant cardiovascular uh, damage. And so it needs to be thought of and checked as well. So with, with our patient, GP recognizes that this is a real possibility. Um, he orders serum calcium which is borderline. It's actually not elevated. It's sitting right up there at 2.56, but it's not elevated, but then goes on and checks the serum PTH as well, which is quite elevated, up to 15. Mm -hmm. This is someone with a high PTH, borderline serum calcium. Do they have primary hyperparathyroidism? Well, they may have normocalcemic primary hyperparathyroidism, but this is one of the difficult things in general practice because it's a very, very common clinical scenario. The other cause of that particular combination is simply vitamin D deficiency or some other disorder where there's a low calcium intake, such as many, many vegetarians or people who are trying to avoid dairy will have a very low calcium intake. Another possibility is that there's mild renal impairment. So people with mild renal impairment will also increase their PTH. So vitamin D deficiency, borderline dietary changes, mild renal impairment will give you exactly that, a high PTH, mm -hmm. normal serum calcium. Often in those situations of calcium, though, will be right at the lower end of the scale. Um, so to see it sitting in the middle or in the mild upper half makes you think maybe, maybe this really is borderline normal, or this is really normal calcemic hyperparathyroidism. So in that situation, what you need to do is do a therapeutic trial. Mm -hmm. You base the patient on vitamin D, mm -hmm. relatively large doses, and for three months, give them vitamin D insufficient to bring their vitamin D levels up. Monitor two things will happen. If the patient does have vitamin D deficiency or if their calcium you know, intake is, is poor, then everything will normalize. The vitamin D will come up to normal, the PTH will go down 
and the calcium will stay in the normal range. Mm -hmm. You've got your diagnosis. And that's called secondary hyperparathyroidism. So it's true elevated PTH, but the PTH has gone up secondary to some other cause. And as I said, in general practice, far and away, the most common cause is vitamin D deficiency, which is a relatively common problem. If the patient has normocalcemic primary hyperparathyroidism, then the vitamin D is often down because it gets driven down by the effect of the high PTH. So it's actually a, a, a feedback cycle. But if you then give that patient vitamin D, the serum calcium will go up through the roof. And that demonstrates that this is not normalization. The PTH will stay up, the calcium will go up, and the vitamin D will go up because you're replacing it. That patient has true primary hyperparathyroidism. So it's important to sort of uh, make that distinction. The other distinction that's important to make in general practice, and this is not this particular patient, but the other mistake that is sometimes made is you measure the serum calcium mm -hmm. and it's raised and then measure the PTH and the PTH is normal. And the response is, well, no, this is not hyperparathyroidism, but indeed it is. So the important test in what we call classic hyperparathyroidism, that is the patient with an elevated serum calcium, is not that the PTH has to be raised, but that it is not suppressed. So a patient with a non-parathyroid cause of a high calcium, and the common causes for that are malignancy, myeloma, anything that's you know affecting the bones, vitamin D intoxicosis, a number of things can do that. The calcium goes up, but if they've got a normal negative feedback cycle, the PTH will be way, way down, mm. often undetectable. So if the PTH is in the normal range, or more importantly, above the uh, halfway point, so it's in the upper half of the normal range, that is primary hyperparathyroidism in the presence of a normal serum calcium. So that's a little aside, but it's important to get those various combinations. So classic, easy primary hyperparathyroidism, high calcium, high PTH. Still classic hyperparathyroidism, but a bit harder to pick, high calcium, non-suppressed PTH, Mm -hmm. And normocalcemic primary hyperparathyroidism is so a high PTH, normal serum calcium that comes up when you've excluded or ruled out any other cause. And that expanded very significantly the diagnosis of the disorder and means there are a lot more patients. And this explains why there are so many patients out there with this disorder, because we've recognised that it's much more prevalent than it used to be. So let's go come back to our, our um, patient, 60-year-old, all these symptoms. She's got a high PTH, borderline serum calcium. She's had three months of vitamin D and bang, her serum calcium's gone up to 2.7 and the PTH has remained high. The question then is, where do we go? She has primary hyperparathyroidism. We've got the diagnosis. The next step used to be well, we should try and find out whether she needs an operation. 
So the old guidelines that came from the NHS gave a series of symptoms. So you would treat that patient if they had osteoporosis, you treat that patient if they had kidney stones, or they, you treat that patient if the serum calcium was above certain arbitrary figures. But the Pearl study and all the information about the um, impact of untreated primary hyperparathyroidism has now changed the recommendations. And uh, certainly most of the major groups are saying this is a disorder which even in its mild form cause significant long-term health effects. Therefore, anyone who has the diagnosis should be offered treatment given that in most cases, it's a very simple thing to treat. And really only in patients who are otherwise unfit, unwell, you know, or have coexisting malignancy, should you say to them, this is something that you can just, just live with. So the old concept of just watching patients slowly deteriorate, their bone mineral density getting less, their, their neurocognitive decline increasing is a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a matter of, she's already got a significant number of symptoms, the tiredness, the lethargy, the mild hypertension, which is also commonly seen in primary hyperparathyroidism. So this is someone that you would say, this is something that's fixable in those cases. And so it should be approached like that. The next step then is to try and find out what's actually causing her primary hyperparathyroidism. Mm -hmm. That's where we get to the pathology. 90% uh, of patients with primary hyperparathyroidism in the community have what's called a, a single benign parathyroid adenoma. So of the four parathyroid glands that are found in and around the back of the thyroid, one will have had a mutation in it, developed into a tumour, and you have a tumour Mm has -hmm. an interesting uh, receptor change such that that receptor on its surface thinks that the serum calcium should be higher than it normally is. It's a very odd biological change, but that's the basis of a benign adenoma. Mm -hmm. That then suppresses the other three parathyroid glands. So all we have to do is find out where that tumour is and take it out. And that's what happens in 90% of patients because it's a single tumour. It's now treated as a minimal, minimally invasive procedure, which can be done as an ambulatory or an overnight stay. So the surgery has improved such that it's relatively low impact. And that's another reason for the guidelines to move towards saying, if you look at the balance, you've got a disorder that's uh, got a major long-term health impact and has a relatively simple, straightforward treatment. Mm. The secret of that, however, and the reason that we've been able to move to minimally invasive surgery is the advent of very accurate localization studies. It's important to try and find out where that tumor is. Um, the original studies that tried to localize parathyroid adenomas were nuclear medicine-based studies, the so-called Sestamibi parathyroid scan. That's still used in some centers and in some situations, but it is older technology that's not quite as accurate. And most centers now have moved towards a combination of an ultrasound, so high quality ultrasound, 
together with a study called a parathyroid 4DC, 4DCT. So this is in fact a multi-phase CT angiogram. Um, it is a CT scan, but the amount of radiation you get from a parathyroid 4DCT, the way they're done now is about the same as what you got from a system EB scan anyway, which was also radiation based. Mm -hmm. So that's my own preference for imaging. And we still do both of them because the 4DCT is a functional scan largely, which looks at blood flow and the parathyroid gland lights up uh, as an angiogram, whereas the ultrasound gives very accurate structural changes. So it tells you exactly where it is and you need the two of those, you need function and structure. And if your 4DCT and your ultrasound are concordant, then there's a very high chance that this is a single adenoma suitable for a minimum invasive approach. So coming back to, to our patient, the GP makes the diagnosis, confirms it with that three month trial of vitamin D, orders an ultrasound and a parathyroid 4DCT. And both of those confirm a large right lower parathyroid adenoma concordant on ultrasound and 4DCT. Refers to a surgeon who does parathyroid surgery and the patient has a ambulatory procedure and goes home that afternoon, having had a large 500 milligram parathyroid adenoma removed. The interesting thing is that you can be sure of a success of this operation in that uh, five, the time, the half time of PTH in the blood is only five minutes. So at the end of the operation, you repeat the PTH and in, if you've been successful and removed it, then the patient's PTH will have come down less than uh, the normal range. It will be su su suppressed. The calcium takes a further 24, 48 hours to come down. But the interesting thing is that if that was the sole cause of the patient's um, primary hyperparathyroidism, for most patients, their symptoms will go away by the next morning. So the myalgia in this patient's case was gone. They wake up in the morning and say, ah, my aches and pains have disappeared because the PTH drive of osteoclast-driven removal of bone has basically disappeared. Mm. The lethargy goes because the dehydration disappears. The other um, parts of the, the symptoms take a longer time. There's very good data that patients following a successful parathyroidectomy will restore the bone mineral content that had been lost within 12 months. So many studies now showing it's a 95% recovery of the expected bone mineral function that would have been appropriate for their age for 12 months. There's not as much data in relation to cardiovascular improvement, but there are certainly some trials coming out now to show that the hypertension improves. And so it's something that will gradually, gradually come good. But that all depends upon having had a successful operation. And it's really important to realise that the picture in this particular case was that of a single adenoma where it was successfully removed mm -hmm. and 
she was cured. Unfortunately, parathyroid surgery is very, very, very easy in 90% of cases, very difficult in another 8% of cases, and virtually impossible to cure the patient in about 2% of cases. Right. And that relates to the embryology of the parathyroid glands. So even though we say there are four glands scattered around the thyroid and there's one big one that you can see on the scan, that's not always the case. Parathyroid glands have an embryological origin in the branchial clefts and they travel. They travel from the back of the neck all the way down. Most of the time in their travels, they stop at the thyroid, but the lower ones can then get dragged down by the thymus and end up right at the base of the pericardium. Wow. So 10% are also multiple. So it's not just one parathyroid that enlarges because it's a conceptually a field change. Often the equivalent parathyroid on the opposite side will also undergo a neoplastic or tumor change at the same time. So about 10% of patients have multiple glands and that may not show up on the initial 4D CT functional scan or even on the ultrasound because the dominant one if it's got a higher calcium sensing receptor set point, will suppress the second uh, second So it's a matter of being aware. That's why when we do the focused parathyroidectomy, you then do a scan of the other glands, then measure the hormones at the end of the procedure. Mm -hmm. And 10% of patients, you find a second gland but there's always one or 2% where you never find the gland or there's a second one that's down in the thymus or in the chest. So it's an operation that still has a failure rate, no matter how good you are, no matter how accurate the, the localization. Mm -hmm. But fortunately for our patient, she did well and she uh, has, has recovered well. That is such an interesting case, Ellie. I, I've probably seen two patients in my lifetime and Seriously, one of them was just like this particular patient. And yet, uh, I am really embarrassed uh, to admit that I probably sat on her way too long, uh, <laughs> treating all her different causes as separate. Right. Well, that, that's, that's been appropriate. I mean, that's been, been the advice. And the, it's been interesting to follow the change in recommend, recommendations. One, and one of the problems of international committees that make guidelines is that they are an amalgam of what's gone in the past together with the current evidence. And so we've seen this change over the years from mm. this is a disorder which you, you know, really can just sit and watch and uh, follow to one where, well, maybe we should be doing something about it. And the first big change to making it a common, commonly treated disorder was the introduction of bone mineral density testing. Mm -hmm. So it used to be kidney stones are pretty obvious, but loss of bone mineral density was clearly something that was not apparent until you broke your bones, you know, until you fell over and had your collies fracture or fractured your hip. But now uh, with the you know, recommendation that uh, certainly postmenopausal women have regular bone mineral density testing, it's picking up large numbers of women much earlier with osteopenia, osteoporosis. Now, most of those have primary 
osteoporosis, but a very significant number of them do have primary hyperparathyroidism. And of course, primary hyperparathyroidism is the only curable form of, of osteoporosis. <laughs> and so that's become much more common, but that was also a smaller number. And then 10 years ago, the Pearl study from Newcastle upon Tyne, hang on, this is associated with a doubling, you know, of cardiovascular mm. risk, significant increase in mortality. And all of a sudden you've got a disorder which is not only common, but harmful. And, and that, that's been the change. So when, when you look back in the past and say, oh, I sat on this patient for four or five years, that was fine. That was according to the guidelines of those days. The problems, I guess, are those where you look back and there was an elevated serum calcium and this is something we talked about before that was not recognised as being an issue because the PTH was normal. So I think, uh, you know, it, it was relatively common to just say, oh, well, this is a problem that we'll mm. and wait and see what happens to it. But that added change to recognising uh, the different ways in which primary hyperparathyroidism can present, and it's not just high PTH, high calcium, it's that whole range of calcium, whole range of PTH that represent different facets of the disorder has um, led to the uh, understanding of the right way to treat it. A few questions. Um, the first is, do you just do a serum calcium or do, do you do an adjusted calcium? That's the first. Um, the second is using vitamin D as both a therapeutic and diagnostic agent. Um, what sorts of doses would you be looking at? So, yes, you, you should use the corrected serum calcium, and that gets reported on every, every biochem, every, every laboratory always reports the corrected serum calcium because that can change very significantly in terms of the albumin levels. Vitamin D, I usually give 2,000 international units of D3 as a reasonable way of getting your vitamin D levels up over a three-month period. I just love the convergence, Lee, of, um, you know, the, the improvements in surgery, uh, the improvements of a CT angiogram using a 4D approach and time angiogram, which is helping you sort out the adenomas. And also this new study uh, that shows that it is more, if you like, significant than we thought uh, with regard to cardiovascular mortality. And it's almost as if these three things have completely changed this whole picture. Oh, yeah, yes. It's, uh, and it's been extraordinary to watch that. So certainly years ago, having a patient diagnosed with primary hyperparathyroidism and being put up to actually be treated by surgery was a relatively rare event. Mm. And, and the rise in the rate of referrals for parathyroid surgery and surgery and outcomes has been exponential, mm. absolutely exponential, uh, certainly in most of the big units. And hopefully with a, with a good health, come, health outcome following that. The other interesting thing that's come out uh, during that time too is the recognition of the genetic basis of hyperparathyroidism and our understanding of the fact that it's relatively common in Australia for there to be whole families affected with primary hyperparathyroidism. 
And it used to just be said that this sometimes ran in families, but now we have a really good understanding of the genetic basis of it. In fact, Australia has the largest population or cluster of what's called multiple endocrine neoplasia type one in the world. And this is familial hyperparathyroidism. So every single child, every single member of the family who gets the disorder, and it's a dominant disorder, will end up with primary hyperparathyroidism. Most of those come from Tasmania. So it's a disorder that was actually traced back to a single serving girl coming out in one of the ships to Tasmania. And because Tasmania is a small island, it grew and grew and grew. And so they've got the largest uh, population of primary hyperparathyroidism due to multiple endocrine neoplasia in the world. So it's fascinating. There are a number of other ones that have come up. So there's a series of genes now that have been shown to cause this in families. And of course, that becomes a different issue. So if you take a family history and find that, oh, mum had her parathyroid out five years ago, and I've got three sisters that have got the same sort of problem, you know, there's a genetic component that needs to be followed through. Lee, I guess the practical issue is if you've got a patient with it and tells you that um, her mother had it, it's almost prompting me to want to screen her siblings. Yes, absolutely. So that's also been a big change that it, it used to be, well, we'll just go and treat them and see how it goes. But there's now genetic screening studies. So most of the major centres have familial neuroendocrine clinics or genetic screening clinics and if you've got a patient where there are multiple family members with primary hyperparathyroidism those clinics will take them on board and test for the major genes that are involved and, right. and those genes are as i said the men1 the so-called syndrome that you see in tasmania there's another one called men2 which is associated with some thyroid cancers and the interesting one is a new disorder called hyperparathyroidism jaw tumor syndrome, where you get hyperparathyroidism in association with jaw tumors. And this has only been in the last uh, eight or nine years, this gene's been recognized. And once you recognize it, all the families start to come out of the woodwork. And there are large clusters of families like this right around the country. So it's, it's not just common in itself but uh, we're getting to the uh, you know the the reason behind it and working out the genetics of it it's amazing Lee you've just taken what I used to think of was a completely unsexy boring disorder to make it so highly exciting because so much can be done about it and there's so much change yes it, it is indeed yeah it's been been great fun <laughs> Quick question. If I was in the country of rural New South Wales, should I send my patient into particular cities where the centres are better? And if so, could you name some of the bigger cities where you think uh, they're good clinics? There is good data now that this is one operation where it should be done in a major endocrine surgery centre, not and, and the temptation is 90% of the time, very simple, very straightforward. But when you hit those 10% that are very, very hard, they're the ones that will surely fail. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of looking to 
major centers that do thyroid and parathyroid surgery and virtually every teaching hospital in and around Australia has such a center. So there are thyroid surgical centers, endocrine surgical centers. Um, if, if you need to find those out, there's a website for Australian endocrine surgeons um, who will give you that information. The other site is the Australian Thyroid Foundation that have access to centres like that. But virtually every major teaching hospital in Australia will have a centre where there are experts in parathyroid surgery. And the difference that makes is not the 90% where it's very simple, but the 10% where it's a very, very difficult operation. Um, I'm just thinking and wondering how many of my patients now I have to review and go back and just do this PTH and serum calcium. Most interesting conversation with you, Lee. Yes, well, I, you know, I guess that, that brings up the summary points. It, it, it's really actually a very, very simple disorder to diagnose. It just needs the, the two blood tests. Mm. And the important thing for GPs is to realise that those two tests need to be done. So it's a matter of recognising the possibility of the disorder in people with non-specific neuromuscular, neurocognitive or musculoskeletal symptoms and just bothering to do the blood tests but doing both the calcium and the PTH, recognising that they don't both have to be up, that an abnormality in either one of them needs to be uh, followed through. And once you've got the diagnosis, the treatment is very straightforward with scanning and surgery. Professor Darbridge, that was just a wonderful learning experience. Okay. Thank you, David, a pleasure. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.